0: Uh, and lastly, our sermon text uh, can be found on page 568, uh, and this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. who is was a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Okay, well, today we are looking at what I think is probably one of the most complex passages that we've had to preach on in a little while. Uh, there are just tons of layers here. There's layers within layers. Uh, tons of theology and content. Um But I think the best way to sum up what you find in these verses is what is God's plan and what is God's purpose in his plan? What is God's plan and what is the purpose in his plan? And if that's not a question on your mind, then I envy you. (laughs) Because it's a question I can hardly avoid asking these days. God, what are you doing? Are you aware what's happening here? Is this a part of your plan? What, what's going on? Or maybe you don't phrase it that way. Maybe that's not exactly the words that are in your mind, but uh, I think we're all wondering, why has God allowed today? Why has God allowed today to take place when we have the pressures of, of bills coming due or, or dreams that seem like they're being blocked? when we're dealing with our our weakening bodies, our weak knees and our, our foggy minds, do you ever just stop and wonder, why is it still going? Why has God allowed today? And what am I supposed to do in the meantime? How am I supposed to live this life? Well, I think Paul, in these few lines, is answering that big question. Paul is trying to show us what God's plan is and what His purpose is in it. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. I want us to look at first the mysterious working of God. And then secondly, I want us to see the purpose behind His workings. So let's jump right into it. Um, I told you guys last week as we were preaching through this that verse 3 through verse 14 in Ephesians And if you don't have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be looking at them. We're going to look at these verses. Um, Verses 3 through 14 make up two paragraphs in your English Bibles, but they're really only one sentence in the Greek. And the focus of that sentence, the point that everything is flowing out of, is verse 10, where it says, He has revealed this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This whole sentence is about God's intention to unite all things in Christ. So that's what Paul is going to unpack for us in these verses that we're looking at today, verses 11 through 14. He is showing us how right now, God is at work uniting all things in Christ. And specifically, he shows us that he is doing that through a sovereign gathering, a sealing power, and a surprising path, okay? A sovereign gathering, a sealing power, and a surprising path. And let's just look at those things in this verse. Verse 11, it tells us, In him we were obtained as an inheritance. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, you might notice that's not what it said. In the ESV, it actually reads, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, but as I've looked at it this week, as I've looked at scholars who know a lot more than I know, almost everyone agrees that the ESV doesn't quite translate that right. Instead, the another popular American translation, the New International Version, does it a little better. It says uh, that we were chosen in Him. What it really means is is what I said: in Him we were obtained as an inheritance. So the sentence is, we were obtained as an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That means the idea that Paul is starting off with in this verse is that God has gathered a people in to Himself. That He has claimed a group of people on earth as His own. And that's not new language. That's not something that Paul made up in Ephesians. That's what we just read in our Old Testament reading. It's very common. It's this thread that we find all over Scripture in Exodus where God says, You will be my treasured possession. He says in Deuteronomy, The Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is His heritage. So why does that matter? Why is it important that I had to bring out that little... Uh, grammatical change well it's because of this theme that we're trying to talk about all spring and all summer that Ephesians is a book that wants to shatter our cultural idols Ephesians is a book that wants to destroy the idea that we get to come to God as consumers that we get to come to God the same way we come to that soda machine in uh, five guys Right? Have you seen the soda machine of five guys? You know what I'm talking about? The giant computer soda machine where you can come away with your you know lemon, lime, strawberry, half Pepsi sprite, you know? That's, that's what we think, right? We think we get to come to God on our own terms, that we come in our own timing, in our own manner. We say, well, when I get a f- when I finish with X, y, and Z, well, then I'm going to come to God because it's really up to me. But over and over, And over again, Paul says, that's not the case. You don't choose God. God chooses you. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not sure I really like the idea that I don't choose God, but God chooses me. But I want to encourage you to think about it differently. I want you to realize that this is actually really good news for us. This is great news because what this passage is telling us is there is more at work in the world, there is more at work in your life than just your whims and preferences. That there is more to your salvation than just your ability to figure things out and get things straight in your head. Now, God might use things in your life. He might use relationships. He might use books. He might use good arguments. He might use a crisis in your life or a conversation with a stranger. But what this is telling us is that ultimately, behind all of those things, God is working. And that kind of throws a wrench, right? It throws a wrench in that consumer mentality that we have, that we get to pick and choose. What it tells us is that God is gathering His people. God is working in our lives. That means that if you belong to God, you can run, but eventually, He will have you. It disrupts our consumer mentality, and it also disrupts our individual thinking. If God is gathering a people to himself, what does that mean? If God is gathering a people, it means it's not just about you. It's about us. It's about all of us together, united in Christ. It means that one of the consequences of being in Christ is that you no longer get to choose the people in your life. That's a part of being in the church. Part of being in the church means that there are going to be people in your life that you did not get to pick. And again, maybe you're saying, I don't know about that. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't sound so great. But again, I want to tell you, it's the opposite. This is great for you. This week I got to go to theology on tap. Uh, Tim invited me and told me about it. We went to go see this guy who I may mispronounce his his name, but it's Peter Beinert, I think. He's a writer for The Atlantic. And he was speaking about uh, what it's like to live in this post-Christian society that we're in. And he was specifically talking about how lately there has been this extreme polarization all over our country, right? That that we are very partisan, that we are very polarized. And one of the reasons he gave for this was that we, as a nation, have generally left communities of faith behind. That we've left the church behind. And so as a result, a lot of people in society have no need to be around people who are different from them. They don't live life with people who are in different age groups or different social classes or different races in any meaningful way. And he says because of that, we tend to just agree more and more and more with ourselves. We don't have our viewpoints challenged. So you can see just in a basic social way, right, there's a benefit for us to be together. There's a benefit for us to be around people who we didn't choose. But Paul tells us it's more than that. It's more than just this social analysis, but there's a a spiritual element to this as well. There is a, a great need for spiritual interconnectedness in your life. In Romans, he says, We, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. In other words, what he's saying is, without each other, we cannot see the body of Christ. Without being connected to one another spiritually, we can't see Jesus clearly. So that's the first thing Paul's trying to communicate here. He's saying that that God is at work, and he is uniting all people to himself. He is doing this sovereign work of gathering people, and he has claimed those people as his inheritance. He said, these people are mine. Secondly, he's working to unite us through this sealing power. So look back at your passage. Verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee... Of our inheritance. So, Paul tells us that even on our most most frustrated days, even on those days when when it seems like everything in your life is is going wrong, when you're overwhelmed by stress and anxiety and, and pain, even in those days, if you're a Christian, you do not have to doubt that God is at work because you have proof. Christians, it says, have the Holy Spirit as a seal on their lives. That we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that's a pretty great picture. We don't use seals very often anymore, but you know what it's talking about, right? The the you get your your signet ring or whatever, and you press it into the wax and you seal the envelope with it. One theologian said, those seals have three purposes. One purpose is to confirm that the letter is genuine. Another purpose is to mark the owner of that letter. And the third purpose is to make the letter secure. So to prove it's genuine, to mark its ownership, and to make it secure. And all of those things are are good examples of what it means that the Holy Spirit is a seal to us. The Holy Spirit, in the life of a Christian marks them as genuine. So when you read the New Testament, when it's talking about an authentic faith, over and over, the proof is not what you do. It's not about how you look on the outside, but it's about the Spirit that's in you. Does the Spirit within you cry out, Abba, Father? That is the, the proof of your genuine faith. But secondly, the Spirit is the mark of, that we belong to God. It shows who our owner is. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He is the one who sets us apart and makes us distinct. Now sometimes, the Holy Spirit makes us distinct in ways that are admirable, in ways that the world likes to see. Maybe uh, they see how we're sacrificial. They see how we care about our neighbors, how we love one another. But also, the Holy Spirit makes us distinct in ways that some that often, they're not so admirable to society. That we choose to follow and obey God in the face and in opposition to our culture. Sometimes the thing that marks us as distinct often makes our life more difficult. But the point is, when the Spirit is your seal, He marks you as someone who belongs to God, and the world can tell. And thirdly, the Spirit makes us secure. That's what Paul wants us to see here, right? That we were sealed, and the, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Another word for that would be uh, down payment. He is the deposit of our inheritance. I know our, our situation here I know we don't have a ton of homeowners <laughs> in this community but if you've ever been uh, in a position to, to, to purchase a home uh, you know that you set down on a down payment and here I think it's you know in the city you can do like one percent or two percent of the price of the house which is really you know not nearly as much as houses cost in our neighborhood but you put down that one percent and then you own the house. You get to move in. It's considered yours. The Holy Spirit is called our down payment. That the Holy Spirit in our life is proof that we belong to God and a promise that He, in fact, will completely redeem us. So, Christians in this room, what would it be like if you took that seriously? How would your life be different if you believed that the presence of the Spirit in your life was a guarantee? Of your inheritance? How would the problems you're facing today, whatever that pressure is that's in the back of your mind right now, how would it be different if you knew without a doubt that a thousand years from now you would be standing in the presence of the living God? And those things would be a distant memory. Well, the Spirit assures us of that today. Well, maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know? Maybe. I'm not sure if I should be sure. How do I know if I have the Spirit? How can I tell if that's something that's happened in my life? You know, that's a fair question to ask. There's, there's some bad teaching about this. In fact, there's some like downright crazy teaching about what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do for you. You know, there's people that tell you when you receive the Holy Spirit, you get magical powers or, you know, you're like Luke Cage, right? Snakes can't bite you. Your skin can't be penetrated. You're, you know, you there's this expectation of superpowers. But that's not, that's not a biblical concept. What the Bible says, what Jesus says, is when the Holy Spirit comes, He is going to do, He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment that the Holy Spirit's main purpose in our lives is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that means that if you are in the place where you can say that you are a sinner and that Jesus is your only hope for salvation, if you live a life where you find yourself continually repenting of your sin and looking to Jesus for your salvation, then that means God has gathered you. That means that the Holy Spirit has powerfully sealed you. That means that God is working in your life right now at this very moment. And at this very moment, He is continuing to work in our church and in this city, uniting all things in Him by a sovereign gathering, by His sealing power. But that's not all. There's a third thing here. This third little piece that I don't want us to miss Paul wants us to recognize that God is also taking a surprising path as He does this work. This one's a little bit more hidden, but it's obvious once you you see it. Pick up your Bibles one more time. Look in verse 11. It says, "...in Him we have obtained." And then if you skip down to verse 13, it says, "...in Him you also, when you heard." So Paul is making this distinction between two groups of people here. He's talking about we, him and some other people. And then he's talking about you guys, which is us, the people who will receive the letter. In him, we've obtained. And he's talking about the gathering and all of this stuff. And then he says, in him, you. Well, what he's talking about is his status as a Jewish believer. He's saying that, that in him, we have been gathered and that's, like I said, from the Old Testament, that God has set apart this the people of, of Israel. right? The Lord's portion is His people. It says, Jacob is His inheritance. So he's, he's saying that, that the, the Jewish people have this, had this special place in the story of God's salvation. But And if he stopped there, you know, just be bragging. <laughs> just want to let you guys know this happened. No, he, but he's, he goes on and he says, no, we also, he says, you also... Have received. In that little bit, Paul is hinting at this much bigger theme that we're going to get into as we study Ephesians. Uh, we'll get into it a lot in chapter 2 and even more in chapter 3, but he's getting into this idea that he calls the mystery of Christ. That first it was only just us, but now it's, it's everybody. He says it's the mystery of Christ that was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. This is Ephesians 3. Something that's been hidden. This mystery is this surprising way that God has started uniting people to himself. The mystery is this surprising path that God's decided to take. And what is it? He says, chapter 3, verse 6, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I told us, I told you that Ephesians is a letter that's trying to bust up all our idols. It's trying to tell us that we can't come to the church as consumers and we can't come to the church with our individualism anymore. Well, he's also attacking one of our main idols in this culture, one of our main idols in in the church, especially the church in America, he's attacking the idol of racism. God tells us, Paul tells us here that God is making all things one in him. And the most powerful earthly evidence of this is that he has broken this great cultural and racial barrier down. That there is no longer a boundary between Jew and Gentile. And we're going to talk about this a lot more. Like I said, we're going to preach a couple entire sermons on this. But for now, I just want to bring it up. I just want you to see that it's here. I want to bring up the fact that, that the church in the United States is very much a captive to racism. We are captive to the racism that pervades every level of our culture, all the structures of our society. On the back of our bulletins every week, it lays out the mission of our congregation. And it says we want to see people reconciled to God and to one another through the power of the gospel. But as I've sat in these verses this week, and as I've thought about our church, I just recognize we have a long way to go before that really happens. And my prayer is that as we study this book, that we would be able to come before the Lord and confess that. That we would ask the Lord to open our eyes and and remove the blindness so we could see the barriers we have in place that are keeping that from occurring. I hope that we would pray that, that more and more this church could become a place that really reflects our community. I hope we could pray that, that, that God would make this mystery evident. That it would no longer be a hidden mystery for the ages, but people would come here and they would see it on display. That God is gathering all His people. All people united in Christ sealed with His Spirit. And Paul says that's exactly what God's going to do. Whether we like it or not, that is exactly what God intends to do. He is gathering His people, and even now, He is at work. At this very moment, while you're thinking about the bills that are due, (laughs) while you're thinking about the stresses that are going on in the background, while you're distracted from eternity, God is at work. He is gathering His prized possession. He is gathering His inheritance, Jew and Gentile, from every tongue, tribe, and neighborhood in Boston. That's what God's doing. That's what His purpose is. That's why the days are still going. But to what ends? Why is he doing the work? Why is he gathering all these people? Well, Paul tells us that too. And this is the last thing I want to bring up. He tells us there's a purpose to all this. There is a purpose for this gathering. Did you notice it? As we read the passage, did you see it? It gets repeated a couple times. The last words of our passage says, "...to the praise of His glory." the reason God is gathering us, the reason why He has sealed us, the reason why He has taken this strange path to pull people in from every corner of the world and every part of our neighborhood is so that we can live lives to the praise of His glory. So that we can live lives in worship, and obedience to God. So, if you find yourself this morning in a place where you are frustrated, if you find yourself this morning wondering what your purpose is, if you feel like you're spinning your wheels, if you're not quite sure what God is up to, if you're wondering what you're supposed to be doing, hear this message. Our lives have been created for the praise of His glory. And until your life comes in line with that purpose, you're always going to feel frustrated. Until your life gets connected with what it's made for, you're always going to feel like you're spinning your wheels. You're never going to feel fulfilled. You're always going to be searching. Here's how the prophet Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 43, it's in here somewhere. Isaiah 43, verse 19. He says, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. You hear this? To my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God says He is doing a new thing for these people that He has chosen. These people that He has gathered to Himself that we would declare His praise. But He says it's a new thing. Why why would God say this is a new thing? That He's gathering these people to Himself? Well, it's because there is a basic reality that is at work in this universe that on our own, we can't do this. On our own, we cannot live lives to the praise of God's glory. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we might like the picture of everybody gathered together as one, no matter how much we might desire unity, Scripture tells us apart from God, we cannot have it. You know, Wake Up the Earth was yesterday. Uh, A bunch of us went. I I saw a lot of you there. Um, I love Wake Up the Earth. It's like a big highlight for the year. But it's also probably the ultimate example of this problem we're talking about. That we all want unity. But when we try to have it apart from God, it ends up just being this pale imitation. Right? We get together, we march down the street, we hold hands for a day. But it's just a day. And it's only this deep. Apart from God, we can't Have this kind of unity scripture tells us we cannot achieve that unity because our division is much bigger than simple cultural differences scripture tells us the division is because sin separates us from God and from each other sin has has broken our connections and there is no way forward There is no path ahead. There is no road to unity. But God has done a new thing. God has done a new thing. In Isaiah, it says He has made a path where there was no path. He has put springs of living water in a deserted wasteland. He did something that nobody expected. He came down to earth. And He bore the penalty for all of our sin. He took away the barriers that our sin had caused by dying on the cross. And then He paved a road of righteousness in His blood. Christ, by His sacrifice, gives us His righteousness that we could never earn. And then when we come to Him, when we confess our sins, when we believe, what is this talking about? He gives us the Spirit. God gives us His Holy Spirit and enables us to do the thing that we could not do before. To live lives of obedience and worship. God gives us His Spirit so that we can live the life that we were made for. A life to the praise of His glory. When I read this stuff, I'm in awe. When you sit down to really consider it, it it takes your breath away. And it gives you hope. I, I, I hope it gives you hope. Obedience is hard. It's a battle. Sometimes being faithful to God feels like it's just not worth all the energy. Sometimes it feels like loving people who are different from you. Loving people that you don't share a lot in common with. Sometimes it feels like that's going to kill you. But the gospel tells us the truth is just the opposite. The gospel tells us that as we are gathered together, as we are connected to one another, As we are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. And when we get joined to one another, our life, as it stops looking so much like our own preferences, and it starts looking more like God's preferences, it starts looking more like God's community and God's people, as we stop seeing so much of ourselves and start seeing those other people that God has has brought us into covenant community with as we start to lose our life we find it let's pray Father I am amazed by this stuff and in some sense I still don't even get it I look at these this union you're trying to bring about in this world. And I, and I don't understand it. But when it comes down to the, to the very lowest level, I know what it means to sit next to someone in this room. I know what it means to, to go to someone's house for dinner. I know what it means to share my life and my pain. And I know it's not easy. But Lord, I pray that You would give us the faith to believe this. I pray that You would give us the faith to believe that that we will see You more through the people here. And that the more this room represents the people in this city, we will see You to an even greater degree. Father, would You come in power and transform our hearts? Would You come in power and transform our church? Lord, would You make us a people who live lives to the praise of Your glory? In Christ's name, amen.